Kind of occurred to me that in those holes were my great grandparents. In those holes were famine, great hunger, refugees. In those holes were immigrant children. To me, those holes mattered and meant something. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. Irish immigrants who toiled in the silver mines of Leadville, Colorado in the late 1800s are largely forgotten today. Many died penniless buried in paupers' graves. But now, a Colorado professor has dug up their stories and their struggles. On today's show, the Heartland Labor Forum brings us a report on the Irish Immigrant Miners Memorial. Then, remember our struggle with Ariana Blockman, who covers the 1916 Springfield, Missouri streetcar strike. A monster parade was held, which 2,500 people participated in. A hundred jitneys, many again with great banners like streetcars run by strikebreakers, avoid the pest, and other alternative modes of transit hit the roads of Springfield to give strike supporters a way of getting around without crossing the picket line. Plus, labor history in two from February 11th, 1979. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. Irish immigrants who toiled in the silver mines of Leadville, Colorado in the late 1800s were largely forgotten in the story of American labor history. But thanks in large part to the work of one man in Denver, their lives and struggles are now being honored. Joining us is Dr. James P. Walsh, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Colorado at Denver. Dr. Walsh's academic interests include the history and politics of labor and immigration and American social movements. He is the founder of the Romero Theater Troupe, a troupe that tells and preserves stories about struggles for human rights and social justice. He is also the founder of the Colorado Labor Education Collaborative, a network of workers, educators, activists, and other troublemakers committed to the proposition that labor education is critical to organizing work. Jim, welcome to the program. Great to be here. First, a geography lesson. Where is Leadville, Colorado? Leadville is, um, sits in the center of the state, um, in the, in the heart of the Rocky mountains. And it's the highest, um, city and the incorporated city in North America, 10,200 feet. In the late 1800s, why were immigrants drawn there? Leadville started as a small gold mining camp, but then exploded into perhaps the largest silver rush in North American history beginning in about 1877. And the population went from just a few hundred to close to 40,000 in just a couple of years. And what kind of uh, immigrants were coming to that area? Um, at that time, it was mostly immigrants from the British Isles, Northwestern Europe. So the Irish were the largest 
ethnic community, followed by Cornish. There were a couple of Leadville minor strikes. Will you tell our listeners about those? Yeah, the first was in 1880, affiliated with the Knights of Labor, part of the movement um, related to the Great Railroad Strikes of 1877. So the miners organized in secrecy and then until the strike, when the strike was launched in the late May of 1880, the miners were asking for a raise from three to $4 a day. They were asking for um, an eight hour workday and the recognition of their union. The governor, um, the, the business community convinced the governor that this was some sort of an insurrection and he declared martial law. It's really the same old story in American labor history. And the National Guard was sent to crush the strike. And they, they did that by arresting striking miners on vagrancy laws and forcing them to work in chain gangs, building roads. So the strike only lasted about three weeks because of the military intervention. But it's quite a su- extraordinary effort that these mi- 5,000 miners walked out of, the di- out of the mines in one day and marched through downtown in silence yeah. in perfect order. Military, almost like military-esque. The leadership was Irish. The leader was, was a Dublin-born Michael Mooney. He was an amazing leader and kept the men peaceful throughout the strike. 16 years later, the miners struck again in Leadville. And this time it was an affiliation. They were affiliated with the Western Federation of Miners, which was a regional, um, sort of a precursor to the industrial workers of the world. So it was a much more radical uh, union and their tactics as well. This strike was met with um, importation of scab miners from different parts of North America, but mostly from Missouri, from Joplin, Missouri, American-born miners brought up to Leadville and escorted to the mines by National Guardsmen. And so few of the mines were reopened in this, in this way. A splinter group from the union decided to try to take back those mines uh, by force. And in September of 1896, about 50 of the strikers organized an attack on Coronado Mine and the Robert Emmett Mine. But because the, the union was infiltrated, the company knew of the attack. And the guards were waiting and ready, and it was bloodbath. The official death toll was only six, but the newspaper mentions that Unofficially, there might have been a couple of dozen people killed who were hastily buried. And I mean, they 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 built a homemade cannon for this assault on the mine. When the assault failed, the National Guard took over, and the, the strike was a, went on for several more months. But it was a lost cause. They were still making three dollars a day sixteen years later. But this really was the foundation of the labor movement in in Colorado. These were the first massive strikes in the state's history. When you go to Leadville today, you won't see any historical markers about the labor movement, the labor history, the strikes, nothing. Just um, mentions of where the mines were and the engineering behind the mining and that, 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 that sort of history, but not the history of the workers fighting for a better, a better shake. So what became of these Irish miners? Well, when the silver market, well, some of them fled after the, the, the strikes, um, they were, the leaders were blacklisted and had to find work elsewhere. And they fled for a better, better situation, places like Butte, Montana, where some of the mines were Irish owned and, and the Irish were recruited up to Butte. Copper mines? Many, yeah, the copper mines. Many to Denver. The Denver Irish was, was really originally the Leadville Irish. And so many of them came down to Denver. But then when the, um, when the silver market died in around 1890, 
read the, the, the Sherman, the repeal of the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, the town declined and, and they fled to places like Cripple Creek and Victor, where there was a gold rush. They fled west to California, Seattle, Butte, Denver. All, all, so it, had, it had its own diaspora. But that, that Irish community in Millville was the most important Irish community in, North, in the Rocky Mountain, the entire Rocky Mountain region in the 19th century. There was no more important Irish community than Leadville. <clears throat> Did they have their own cemetery in Leadville? Yeah, Evergreen Cemetery. Wasn't the first cemetery in Leadville, but it's the oldest today. And the back of the cemetery is a pauper section. And in that pauper section is a Catholic part of the pauper section. There are about 1,500 to 2,000 graves. And we have, a, we have records for about 1,300 of them, people buried there. So we know that most of them are Irish immigrants. And the average age of the people buried in the Catholic section is 23. That tells us all we need to know really about the life of the people who live there. Half of them are children. So about half are 12 or younger. Well, let's fast forward a hundred years or so. How did your professional work lead you to Evergreen Cemetery? Good question. So I like to think that I didn't find, I didn't discover the graves. They discovered me. <laughs> and, and, and in other words, I feel like there was some sort of a, a third party leading me there somehow. I'm from a steelworker family near Pittsburgh. I grew up with uncles and my grandfather was 40 years in the mill. And so I grew up in a working class family and community and, you know, first generation to go to college, my siblings and I, and all, and all of that, but we were never taught anything about our Irish roots. It just was wear green on St. Patrick's day. And that's about it though. My name is James Patrick Walsh. So I started when I became a a graduate student, I started to think, well, wait a minute, what does that mean? I started digging into my own genealogy and I fortunately, I had an uncle who had already done a lot of this research and was so happy to, to help me. And, and he and I became very close digging around in county courthouses. This is before genealogy was done on the internet, church basements, church records. And, and what we found is that Two of my great-grandparents were killed in train accidents. Another was, was injured severely as a brakeman, but when he was thrown off a train, and that's because my people always lived near train tracks. They worked the trains, they, and they were always in industrial, dangerous industrial spaces. So when I became an academic, it was easy for me to, to decide to be a, a labor historian that looks at the lives of working class people and, and, um, so when it came time to choose a dissertation topic, I wanted to study a, an Irish community here in Colorado, an Irish immigrant community. It became very obvious that Leadville was the place to go. And, and when I went to that cemetery for the first time, a friend took me out there. I stood in that, in that popper section and I was surrounded by sunken holes, just unmarked sunken holes and rows and rows, acres of these, rows and rows of these holes. I, 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 it kind of occurred to me that in those holes were my great grandparents. In those holes were the famine, great hunger, refugees. In those holes were immigrant children. To me, those holes mattered and they meant something. And they, those holes reached all the way to Central American refugees that are fleeing their countries today. They've reached all the way to African refugees trying to make their way to Europe today. They, they matter and they connect us and, so I, those holes are now being memorialized 
bring lots of tourists to that cemetery. But what they really are is a wake-up call to people with Irish roots to understand who they are and what their history is and what their responsibilities are toward immigrant working-class communities today. And I keep, I say this so many times, but I'll never stop saying it. And there's some who, some who want me to stop saying it, but I won't stop saying it. If we're going to celebrate 19th century immigrant workers through this memorial, we can't ignore 21st century and the dignity of their work and of their struggle. I'm just an old coal miner and I labor for my bread. This story in my memory I've here told. For the sake of wife and baby, how a miner risks his life. For the price of just a little lump of coal Don't forget me, little darling When they lay me down to rest Tell my brothers all these loving words I say Let the flowers be forgotten Sprinkle coal dust on my grave in remembrance of the UMWA. Mother Jones is not forgotten by the miners of this field. She's gone to rest above, God bless her soul. Tried to lead the boys to victory, but was punished here in jail for the price of just a little lump of coal. When a miner in the morning gets his car up to the face, he'll set some timbers and he'll bore himself a hole. He'll get a shot of powder, get his battery and his line. He's shooting down that little lump of When a man has toiled and labored till his life it's almost gone Then the operator thinks he's just a fool They sneak around and fire him just because he's growing old And swear they caught him breaking company rules Don't forget me little darling when they lay Brothers, all the loving words I say. Let the flowers be forgotten, sprinkle cold dust on my grave in remembrance of the UMWA. And so we had a dedication up there recently, and a member of today, Leadville, 40% of Leadville today are immigrants, mostly from Chihuahua. So we had a member of the community speak at the dedication, along with a southern member of the Southern Ute community, recognizing that this is Ute land that the memorial is being built on. And that brought a holistic sense to the whole procedure that what we're doing here is not just, not just honoring our own. We're not just saying these are Irish people that deserve to be recognized, but we're saying really that this is a, a history that continues today that we have to be in solidarity with uh, workers today. So 
I'll stop there, but that's kind of the longer story of how I got up there. Well, why don't you tell us about the Irish Immigrant Myers Memorial and how that came to be through your efforts? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'll try to give you the abridged version because it is, it is its own long story, but, um, I've, I've told the story in my classes for many years. So maybe about six years ago, one of my former students reached out to me. He's now kind of a mover and shaker in DC in the political world. He said, you know, that cemetery in Lentville, he said, the Irish government needs to know about this. <laughs> I thought, well, what, why would they care? You know, I didn't suspect they would care. So he, the next thing you know, he CC'd me on an email to the consulate's office demanding that they get up to Leadville and see this cemetery. I was, it was one of those emails you, you wished you weren't CC'd on. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was a very aggressive tone, you know, but it worked. A young consular general named Adrian Farrell made an appointment to come meet us up to Leadville and he was very moved and, and, and the whole process started from there. And he was welcomed to Leadville as a, as a, almost like a foreign president would be welcomed. And we applied to a, for a heritage grant from the Irish government. We won a big grant. The, the Irish government is our big, is the biggest funder of this whole process. And I learned that the, to the Irish government, the diaspora really does matter. There's 80 million people in the world who call themselves Irish, even though there's only five million people in Ireland. So then the, the ambassador, Irish ambassador to the U.S. came in 2019, right before the pandemic. With his wife, we were able to show them around and he was equally moved by the experience. And um, so we started uh, raising money and getting the construction and the design of the memorial going. And the media picked up the story over the past year. We've heard from lots of Irish media and American uh, media. So as the word has spread, it's been great to, that the value that I saw in, in this memorial is recognized by others as well. So, um, so that's how it all is kind of taken off. It should be complete in, a, in another year or so. And we're, we're expecting a big unveiling. But for me, Mark, I'll just say, as this has gained a lot of attention, I think there's a danger it's like a mission creep. You know, once powerful politicians get involved, different organizations, the vision tends to shift to something. And so I'm really working hard to maintain the original vision mission of this. This is really a space where um, the horrors of industrial labor can be felt and, and seen visually. Immigrant communities have been the, the cannon fodder of that industrial labor struggle forever, continue to be today. And that that's that's really why this exists and what, what it's telling us. It's not about, you know, this is not a like a space where you're waving the flag and celebrating assimilation. <laughs> it's, it's about honoring the dignity of your workers. So that, 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 that's, that's what I'll keep saying every time I talk about it. How can our listeners learn more about the memorial? Well, to donate, I'll just say the, the Irish Network of Colorado's website is the place to donate. And then you asked how to learn more. You, people could contact me. At, you could email me at james.walsh at ucdenver.edu. Or there's lots to read online about it, but I'm happy to help anyone who wants to learn more about it. And I'm up there a lot. If anyone wants to be walked around the cemetery, I, I take a lot of groups as well. So, In a couple of moments we have left, tell us a little bit about the Romero Theater Troupe. Yeah, this is something I started... It's funny that I just looked at my watch and realized that today is the 17th anniversary of the Romero Troop. Um, we, 17 years ago today, I had a vision of, I was using theater to teach history in my 
university classes with great success. Students engagement shot up when we introduced art and threw away lectures, the memorization of data as the way history is taught and learned and replaced it with art. Student created art and it was beautiful. So I started at a vision of, of a community theater that tools, um, you know, the kinds of history that local, that parents are trying to ban in across the country in rural areas. The important stuff. And makes people uncomfortable. Well, that, that, that a truth that told these stories on stage, the history of the labor movement, the history of, of human rights, of immigrant rights, LGBTQ struggles, all of this, to put it on stage in a way that um, kept it alive. And um, so we've been doing this for 17 years. And right now we're working on a play that will highlight workers organizing today in 2022. There's been such an upsurge and resurgence of labor that we're going to tell stories of workers that have been on strike and struggled to organize. So um, if anyone lives in the Denver area that wants to be involved, all they need to do is reach out to me because because we don't have auditions or none of us are going to have any training in theater. We just, we call it organic theater because we make it up. But there is a long history of worker theater in this country going back to the 30s. There was lots of community theaters that involving workers themselves acting. And that's really what we do. It's great fun. It's, it's, it's a lot of improvisation improvisational theater. It's not scripted or it's not a director model. So we don't have director barking orders and, and just building on one person's vision. Instead, we have an entire community's vision. There's, there's over a hundred people involved. It's a big group. Finally, tell us a little bit about the Colorado Labor Education Collaborative. A few years ago, I, I started to think about another way to, especially during the pandemic, to promote labor history because it's always bothered me how how labor history is censored out of the national narrative. And when it is included, it's only, only selective pieces of it are included. And what that means is the tragedy of that is that younger, younger generations aren't taught to say it. They don't understand. They can't connect their own working lives to the, the longer narrative of people who have organized and struggled before them. So anyway, I, I just started creating programs with the local labor community and um, people I've met in labor circles, labor study circles, started build, building online monthly programs uh, where people can tell stories and talk about uh, a subject they know a lot about. And to my surprise, maybe not to my surprise, they were well, they've been well attended. Uh, we've had anywhere between 20 and 60 people at all the programs we've had, and it's been a great way to do it over the pandemic. I, I do I do want to begin transitioning these back to in person. I think what I'll probably be doing is hybrid where they're in person, but people can still attend virtually, um, at least for now, because, because the positive about attending virtually is that people from outside of Denver can, can join and people from the comfort of their own homes. But I also don't want to give up on that. There's something electric about being in, in person that is also very valuable. So We'll see where it goes. Well, congratulations on the memorial. And uh, you certainly are doing yeoman's work to keep uh, labor history alive. Dr. James P. Walsh, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Colorado at Denver. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. Loved it.
Welcome to Remember Our Struggle. I'm Ariana Blockman. Last month, we spoke about the 1916 New York City streetcar strike and the iconic image we have from it of the two little girls on roller skates wearing don't be a scab sashes and handing out pro-union leaflets. I told you then that we would be speaking this time about the Springfield, Missouri streetcar strike in 1916. If you listen regularly, you know that some time ago, we also spoke of the streetcar strike here in Kansas City. Well, the folks in Kansas City were actually acting on inspiration from their counterparts in Springfield. Scott Malloy, professor of labor and industrial relations at the University of Rhode Island, wrote about the streetcar strikes starting back in 1902 and described them as a battle for control of city streets and city government, a struggle that was at times waged in courts, voting booths, town councils, state legislatures, and in the streets themselves, notable for widespread violence and the active participation by passengers, organized labor, much of the middle class, and many small businesses on the side of motormen and conductors. At first, the streetcar company in Springfield was gracious to union leaders, allowed pro-union notices to be posted, said they would be happy to meet with the representatives. But when a contract proposal had been submitted, the company froze up and started stalling the meeting. The workers weren't even asking for a raise, only for their union to be recognized and for their union to have the right to third-party arbitration of grievances. But workers had to go looking for the manager, who evidently played hide-and-seek with them to avoid meeting with them and the company attorney. Finally disgusted, the workers said they would strike the next day if they didn't get assurances that the contract would be signed, and they did. The vote was unanimous. A large rally was held to support the strikers by the local labor council, and a monster parade was held, which 2,500 people participated in. A hundred jitneys, many again with great banners like streetcars run by strikebreakers, avoid the pest, and other alternative modes of transit hit the roads of Springfield to give strike supporters a way of getting around without crossing the picket line. On the second day, the mayor of Springfield tried to intervene and invited both sides to a meeting. While the labor side showed up, management did not. The mayor told the newspaper afterwards he thought 90% of his residents supported the strikers. He may have been a bit overenthusiastic in his estimation, but nonetheless, the next day, over 3,000 union supporters marched through the streets two by two. After four days, the company caved and signed a revised charter contract. Not a single streetcar had moved in those four days. After 3,000 people marched in the street to support the union, only 5,800 voted in the next mayor election. The new mayor would prove to be even more staunchly pro-labor than his predecessor. In a pattern you'll see repeated across labor history, the company had seemingly only caved temporarily to allow itself to prepare to resist a more prolonged strike. When everything was in order, they fired the secretary of the union for a laundry list of reasons ranging from incompetence to not wearing his uniform correctly. The union tried to arbitrate on his behalf, as was their duty, but the company wouldn't budge, and their contract stated that refusal of arbitration by either party made the contract null. Before the workers could even vote to strike, the company attorney obtained a temporary injunction prohibiting it, and the manager made arrangements for the importation of scab motormen from Chicago. However, the judge then refused to issue a permanent injunction and ruled that the company had not acted in good faith, clearing the way for a strike. Newspapers made reference to scabs being assaulted, but no arrests were made. The mayor and police chief were accused by some of being overly sympathetic to the strikers. A couple of riots occurred, and saloons were ordered by the mayor to be closed early from there on to avoid any more drunken disorder. Shortly before 10 p.m. on Christmas Day, Springfield was rocked with an explosion. It was a dynamited streetcar. Oddly, before the police could arrive to investigate the scene, the company had removed the streetcar to a barn and refused them access to it. Court testimony led to the suspicion and indictment of several scab company rather than union men. 
the star witness, a Mr. Rowden, then skipped town and later claimed he had been told to do so by the assistant prosecuting attorney. He worked for the Kansas City Streetcar Company while he was on the lam. When he failed to testify in court, he was charged with perjury, and the charges against the scabs were dropped. Rowden, only then, was apprehended by a company private eye and was jailed for two years for perjury. Any remaining public support for the company after those shady proceedings evaporated when the baby of a local merchant was kidnapped and murdered by two scab workers brought in by the company manager from Chicago, who also turned out to be German spies. After a 252-day strike with so many twists and turns, it should be a movie. I had to leave out some for brevity. The streetcar workers of Springfield, Missouri, finally won all they asked for. Union recognition, guaranteed arbitration, reinstatement with seniority of workers dismissed during the strike for supporting the union, and a raise. I hope you have enjoyed the story of the 1916 Springfield streetcar strike. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1979. Rufino Contreras gave his life to the labor movement. In the Imperial Valley of California, the United Farm Workers were engaged in a bitter labor strike against lettuce growers. Shortly before noon, Contreras and six other strikers walked onto a lettuce field owned by Mario Sacan in an attempt to try and talk to a group of 75 scabs brought in to break the strike. Before they could reach the scabs, shots rang out. Contreras was hit with a single bullet to the head. When Contreras' brother and some of the other strikers tried to recover the body, three foremen shot at them. Contreras lay in the lettuce field for more than an hour before an ambulance arrived. Sometimes, it's better to let the voices of history speak for themselves. Read from the statement issued by Cesar Chavez on this brutal murder, February 10, 1979 was a day of infamy for farm workers. It was a day without hope. It was a day without joy. The sun did not shine. The birds did not sing. The rain did not fall. Why was this such a day of evil? Because on this day, greed and injustice struck down our brother Rufino Contreras. But we are here today to say that true wealth is not measured in money or status or power. It is measured in the legacy that we leave behind and those we love and those we inspire. In that sense, Rufino is not dead. Wherever farm workers organize, stand up for their rights and struggle for justice, Rufino Contreras is with them. As for the three foreman shooters, Judge William Lenhart ruled that there was insufficient evidence to prove which of the three foremen killed Rufino. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That'll really help folks to find the show. Labor History and Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to our friends at the Heartland Labor Forum, Kansas City's only program about the workplace. Produced by and for working people, the Heartland Labor Forum has been agitating on the air since 1989. Find out who's busting unions and who's fighting back. 
the show airs on Thursdays at 6 on KKFI 90.1 FM, streaming at kkfi.org. And, of course, you can search for Heartland Labor Forum on your favorite podcast app. Music today included Working Man by the Dubliners, an Irish folk group known for their strong, rough-and-tumble approach to classic traditional songs. Sprinkled Coal Dust on My Grave by United Mine Workers of America member Orville J. Jenks. And another version of Working Man by the Men of the Deeps, a male choral ensemble composed of former coal miners from Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdat. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history and see you next time.